0: My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders at our church. And this morning we are uh, in Acts chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there, we're going to start at verse 19 as we are continuing our study of the book of Acts. <clears throat> now I'm sure you've noticed that when it comes to topics of prejudice and race relations, our culture is in something of a big mess. That big mess consists not only of the fact that we are the heirs of many evil intentions and ungodly prejudices that have returned to demand a reckoning upon our generation, but the mess also consists of the fact that nobody seems to know what to do with the mess. So there are some who say that to be white is by definition to be racist. And therefore, what people need is to learn how to be less white. And there are others who deny the presence of widespread racism, even in the norms and systems of our culture within which we live and breathe and want to go on as we have been doing. People are being fired from their jobs because of social media posts that one subgroup or another finds offensive. You've probably heard the news that Seuss Enterprises recently decided to cease publishing six of Dr. Seuss's books on account of demeaning racial stereotyping in the artwork. And the response to this news is very telling. There are some who cheer the decision citing the fact that Seuss has been criticized for that for decades. And there are others crying foul, wondering how things could have gotten so bad that even Dr. Seuss, our beloved child's author, is not above cancellation. Like I said, it's a big mess. It's a big mess, and nobody really knows what to do with it. If a proposed solution to the evils in society causes a state of affairs where people are more divided and more antagonistic to one another, it's wise for us to consider whether the proposed solutions are having the desired effect. Now, this morning, I'm not here to solve our nation's race relations. That's just not possible in a sermon, one sermon. But what I'm here to do this morning is to remind you And hopefully encourage you that it is worth it to embrace this mess and try to help. It's worth it to embrace the mess and try to help. Our calling to represent our Lord Jesus Christ depends on this. And the blessings of overcoming prejudice are surprisingly glorious. The Lord Jesus Christ has begun the process of uniting all nations into one household under his headship. And the blessings of living in this reality in mutual submission to him are truly unbelievable. So in this morning's passage from Acts chapter 11, we'll ask two main questions that you can see on your outline. Two main questions with respect to overcoming prejudice. First, will they do it? Will the people of God overcome their prejudice? And second, is it worth it? The answers to these questions will hopefully help us as we seek to navigate the mess within which we're mired. Let me pray for us this morning and for this very sensitive topic as we seek to explore what God's word has to say to us. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might see Jesus in your word and we might exalt Him who is the head over all things for His church. So because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And so Lord, please grant us understanding, soft hearts, and help us to overcome prejudice Because you've shown us that it is worth it. Help us now by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first question this morning is, will they do it? That is, will people, especially the people of God, overcome their prejudice? Let's read verses 19 through 24. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also the Hellenists are the Greek speakers, preaching the Lord Jesus were added to the Lord. We'll stop there for now. Our entire passage here from 19 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 30, it's structured around four brief vignettes, four brief scenes, and all except the last one conclude with a summary statement involving a great number of people, a great many people. The fourth one will mix up the formula by telling us of a great famine instead of a great many people. But in this first point here, verses 19 through 24, I'm I'm covering the first pair of vignettes. In the second point, we'll cover the second pair of vignettes. So in this first pair, we wonder whether the Jewish believers in Jesus will overcome their prejudice to speak to non-Jews. Will they speak? The result in verse 21 will be a great number turning to the Lord. And then second, we'll ask whether other Jewish believers will overcome their prejudice to receive the non-Jews who have now believed. And the result in verse 24 will be a great many people being added to the Lord. So let me address these in turn. First, will they speak? Will they speak? Verses 19 through 21. We pick up the narrative here in Acts with those who were scattered, verse 19, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Stephen was the guy who had been handpicked by uh, Greek-speaking believers in Jerusalem to help manage the affairs of, of um, relief for widows. This was in chapter 6. In chapter 7, he got lynched by the Jews, the, the, the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem, And after his death, right at the beginning of chapter eight, a great persecution broke out against the followers of Jesus, forcing everyone, but the apostles, the Lord's original disciples to leave town. And we pick up there right here in verse 19, we pick up with that scattering that came in the wake of, of Stephen's lynching. We can't help But notice that Luke has narrated quite a few events since then. I had to go back to chapter 6, 7, and 8 to tell you where this is picking up from. Remember in in chapter 8, if you've been with us or if you've read this book, we saw the conversion of the region of Samaria, and we saw the incident with the eunuch who took the message of Jesus back to Africa with him. In chapter 9, we saw the conversion of Saul, who was actually the chief persecutor against the church. And in chapter 10 and the beginning of 11, last week, we saw the inclusion of non-Jews, the inclusion of Gentiles, a Roman army officer, and his entire household. And we learned the staggering truth, staggering for them at the time, that they did not have to become Jews before they could become Christians. And that was a big, big deal. So a bit of time has elapsed since Stephen's lynching. This dispersion that we pick back up with in verse 19 here, it, we need to understand from this that it wasn't a matter of a spring break with a return back to home after a week. It wasn't like a vacation where you kind of go out and you're vomiting Jesus all over every stranger you see over the course of your travels before finally getting back home and things go back to normal. This was a true refugee relocation that took place over years those scattered would have they were making their way around the world trying to find their place and some of them were told in verse 19 they went as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch basically this is as far north as you can go from Israel and still be in the Middle East right up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, even getting into the southern reaches of Turkey. Cyprus is actually a pretty large island out, out to sea a ways in the sea. And these people went on their way, speaking boldly about Jesus as they went. But the end of verse 19 tells us that they spoke only to Jews, only to Jewish people. They went to those that they knew, those who were like them. And yes, it was the same type of people who had driven them out of Jerusalem to begin with, but it was all they knew. It was all that they had reason to believe were the people who might consider these words of life. But, verse 20, there were some of them. Some of these men, unnamed men, will never know and be able to celebrate who they were. They were from Cyprus and from Cyrene. Cyprus is that island in the Mediterranean. Cyrene is a city way out west on the north coast of Africa. And some of these men had the guts to speak to Greeks also. In particular, they did this in Antioch, this city of Antioch, which was quite a city. It gave them a tremendous opportunity. So that you understand this. Antioch was quite a melting pot at the time. Antioch was actually the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. The only larger cities you could find in the empire were Rome and Alexandria. Antioch was called the Queen of the East by some of the ancients. It was situated on major trade routes. It was filled with people from all over the empire. And we know that each people group who were living there had their own sector of the city, kind of like Chinatown or the Russian Quarter or you name it. You've got people grouping by their groups. You had the Jewish part of the city and the other parts of the city for all these different nationalities. And so people could pretty much keep to themselves in such a large city. But here, these followers of Jesus from Cyprus and Cyrene, they began moving beyond their fellow Jews. They took the risk of speaking to Greek speakers. And wonder of wonders, it worked. Verse 21, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Because the hand, you see that verse 21? The hand of the Lord was with this. Go figure. God's hand was present. People were ready to hear the message. They were open to hearing about eternal life and about heavenly riches, and they acknowledged their sin to God. They rejoiced in the provision of God through his son's death on the cross, whom they would now proclaim the king and the Lord of heaven and earth on account of his resurrection from the dead. Take that, Caesar, in your third largest city. Now, right before this, in the, in the beginning of chapter 11, we read about how Peter, the, the, the chief apostle, the leader of the, of the church at this time, he had to persuade his fellow Jews of the fact that God wanted them to speak to non-Jews. And in verse 18 of chapter 11, they, they agreed. They agreed that God was now in the business of granting repentance and eternal life to Gentiles, therefore bringing them into his kingdom. So that's what we just came out of. And now we're told of this courageous band of unnamed nobodies, who took all that to heart. And the author is telling us here that this mission to non-Jews, it wasn't just for Peter. It wasn't just for the apostles. It was even for these no-name, ordinary folks who just wanted to see Jesus continue bringing heaven to earth and making everything right again. So will they overcome their prejudice and speak? Some of them will. Not all of them but when they do it pays off and a great number believe and turn to the lord but this takes us to the next big question which is will the rest of the jews receive this turn of affairs and receive these new people these outsiders verses 22 through 24 will they receive it because word of what's happening in antioch Gets back to the back south to the bigwigs in Jerusalem, the same people who had a problem with Peter going into a house to eat with Gentiles, those same people get word of this, and this leaves us wondering whether the Mother Church will receive this turn of events. Will they acknowledge these new church members in Antioch? Will they enfold them as they did with their kind of unaccepted, you know, half cousin Samarians in chapter eight? Will they unfold them? And of course, we read it. You know that they did. Instead of disavowing the reports they heard, what they do in verse 22 is they send Barnabas to check it out. Now, Barnabas himself, we were told back in chapter 4 that Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus. That was his place of origin. So he may have actually known some of the evangelists from Cyprus who were in Antioch making all this business go down. So perhaps the folks in Jerusalem thought he'd have some relational capital to figure out what is really going on here and how do we work this and how do we understand this. And look at how the text describes Barnabas' perspective. He arrives at this ancient metropolis. He witnesses the large number, the great number of non-Jews putting their faith in Jesus. And the text says, verse 23 He saw the grace of God. Do you get what's happening? What he literally saw with his eyes was the reception of the message of Jesus by the nations of the world. And the only appropriate label to put on it is the grace of God. That's what he saw. Of course, this was a picture of God's grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor and acceptance toward the nations to include them. But this was also a picture of God's grace and his favor to the Jews to allow them to be the source of blessing the whole world. This must have been a little bit like bringing your boyfriend or girlfriend home for the first time to meet your parents. You know, your deepest desire is for your parents to receive this person on whom you have set your affection. Barnabas is the big daddy coming to inspect. They're not, they're not coming to his house here. He's going to their house. Will he and the Jewish believers he represents receive these people into their extended spiritual family? Yes. Yes, they will. The prejudice of Jew against Gentile is being overcome. The history of proud antagonism and self-righteous nationalism on the part of the Jews at this time is starting to crack. And not only does it bring much glory to God, but in verse 23 we're also told it brings much joy to Barnabas and others. He was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful. And a great many, again, Verse 24, we're added to the Lord. How does this apply? Friends, we need brave men and brave women. We need brave young men and brave young women. We need brave girls and brave boys who will take the first step to cross the aisle And just open up conversations and speak. And yes, we need to listen too. We need to hear the stories and the experience of others to help overcome the deep-seated prejudices. But we need to find ways to speak of the Lord Jesus. We have a unique opportunity in this town. Because the nations have come here to us. We have a number of nations represented in our church already. And for that, I am so grateful. I love what God is doing here. And anywhere you go in town, this town, you can't help but bump into Asians and Africans, Middle Easterners, and many others. Some of them can be quite intimidating. And for many reasons, not the least of which is so many of them drive such hot cars. My sons love driving past those townhouses near Park Forest where a lot of the international graduate students live because we just want to go and check out all the BMWs and the Teslas and the Corvettes and the Porsches and the Bugattis. It's amazing. And so we'll sort of creep past, but you know what? When we're at a park or we're at a grocery store and you see these people everywhere, how challenging is it to simply treat someone like a human being and just say hello, to just step across there and open up a conversation. And that's a critical first step to developing a relationship where we can tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really scary at first, but the opportunities abound. When Aaron and I opened our bedroom a few years ago to a Saudi, it ended up connecting us to the entire Saudi community in this town, which is way larger than I realized at the time. And the people in that community were more than happy to talk to us, to get to know us, to share life stories. They were more than happy to speak and to hear about the things of God and Christ. Now, one other thing I want to speak to is is that we need to keep in mind that our prejudices are not always based only on ethnicity or nationality. Let me ask, have you ever tried to befriend someone who identifies as gay or transgender? I'm not talking about developing the most intimate of friendships, but simply taking the time to converse and build an acquaintance to cross that aisle. Yes, we believe the Bible has some very clear things to say about the gay or transgender lifestyle. It does. And we're not embarrassed by that. But the Bible also has very many, very clear things to say about the gospel going out to all humanity under heaven. We'll be able to talk about the Bible's view of sexual ethics over time. But how about if we first have some conversations about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for the world? That's the only foundation will open productive conversations about biblical ethics or biblical lifestyles, no matter what the issue is that someone happens to be struggling with or living in. So the questions I asked of the Jews in this text, I now ask of Grace Fellowship Church and our friends and visitors who are with us today and those who are with us on Zoom, even if you're a visitor, I ask these questions. Will they speak to the nation's? or only to those who are just like they are? Will they receive all different kinds of people who are willing to put their faith in Christ? Or will they only receive those who don't make them feel uncomfortable? There's still more to do in the text here because this isn't just about gritting your teeth and bearing with it either. It's not about forcing yourself to do your duty for God and country, so to speak. The Lord is kind and merciful to show us not only what obedience to him looks like, that's this first pair of of short scenes, but he also shows us why obedience is worth it. That's where he goes in the next two scenes. Is it worth it? Let me read verses 25 through 30. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So again, we have here two brief scenes. Each one of them is taking pains to show that the risk of speaking to Greeks was well worth it. The first scene shows us it was worth a new name, 25 and 26. And then the second scene, 27 through 30, shows us that it was worth a collaborative return. Let me explain what I mean. First, it was worth a new name, 25 and 26. Perhaps Barnabas felt that there were just more converts than he could handle on his own. Maybe he felt their education was at a higher level than he was able to match, or their diversities and distinctives were beyond his experience. We don't know what his motivation was, but we're told that for some reason, in verse 25, Barnabas went to look for Saul. He went to Tarsus where he knew Saul was. He knew that Rabbi Saul who had been trained by the expert Jewish rabbi Gamaliel and who had been confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he was the one who had answered all the Hellenists and their objections, those Greek speakers, in both Damascus and in Jerusalem. And he was able to engage with them. Barnabas knew that this guy was going to be a more effective teacher here in Antioch than Barnabas himself could be. So he went to grab him. And this really encourages me because it's a reminder to me that all of us together are Christ's body. Not all of us will have the same role. I want you to know, friends, that it's okay if you face a situation you can't handle. I'm not saying by asking, will they speak, will they receive? I'm not asking you to do everything. It's okay if you can imagine someone else being a much better fit than you. It's actually the path of humility and community to recognize that, that someone else may be a better fit and to act accordingly. For example, Aaron and I have really appreciated the opportunity we've had to open our spare bedroom to people until the pandemic hit. But we'll never be able to do it quite the way Daniel and Kelly Fiella do it my dear brother and sister for whom i have so much respect they rent out their basement and before long there's a bible study there's deep friendship there are questions of eternity and there's personal counseling all taking place and to me it seems like it's like that for them doesn't look like that for us but you know some of us were made for more widespread contact. Some of us were created for quick depth in relationships. Some are gifted for more thorough teaching ministry. Some are going to be more creative in hospitality or more effective encouragers. And that's all wonderful. It's not just okay, it's beautiful. And it ought to remind us that this thing we call the church... The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is not primarily about any one of us. It's about all of us put together. And when we are characterized by that sort of gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, world-reaching mindset, and that penetrates us as a community, you know what? Others cannot help but see Jesus more than they see any single one of us. Verse 26 contains a dramatic statement that it was in Antioch that the disciples, these Jesus followers, were first called Christians. Note the passive voice. They were called. They did not give themselves this new name. They did not self-identify as Christians. This name was given to them by those on the outside. The Greek word for Christian simply means Christ follower. It's a, it's a certain kind of word form. It's the same form that they would use in Greek to identify any political or ideological faction. You could have the Caesareoi, the party loyal to Caesar, Caesar. You have the Herodianoi, who are the Herodians, those who are loyal to Herod. And you have here the this new group that's being identified, the Christianoi, the Christians, those who are identified by others as being loyal to Christ, to the Christ, Jesus. The point is that the loyalty to Christ that was evident to any who saw this community in action. Anyone who saw this community in action witnessed loyalty to Christ. You see, their identity at this point, is becoming less and less associated with Judaism or with Moses in particular. And instead, it's becoming completely centered on Jesus, the Christ, the one who is drawing all nations to himself. How does this apply? Friend, if you don't yet follow Jesus, please understand That what Jesus does is he empowers his people to be more like him. Though at times, and in some generations, his people don't quite live up to this. And they get new names from others, all right, just not the ones they were looking for. It remains the case, even though that happens, it remains the case that the answer to the prejudice will never be found anywhere but the Lord Jesus Christ christ all other efforts to overcome prejudice have only and will only continue to make matters worse they result in more strife more division and increasing prejudice in all directions but jesus is committed to drawing all nations together and when we remain loyal to him we will do the same The fact that Jesus died and rose to save sinners and make them pure and acceptable before God, that removes, that just undercuts our self-righteousness and our self-reinforcing prejudices. And that's what moves us to step out, to overcome barriers, and to welcome others who will turn from sin to trust Jesus. So would it be worth it to you to have such a reputation? When we speak and when we receive people of all kinds and flavors into our lives, our homes, and we dialogue about King Jesus with them, we run the risk that people will end up seeing Jesus more clearly than they see any one of us. And we'll be known as the Jesus people. This is why, though, I love preaching the word of God. I am more than delighted to not be the only preacher in this church. May this place never be known as Peter Kroll's church or Tom Hallman's church or Dan Miller's or Ryan Schreckengast's church, but may our name accurately reflect our reality, that people who see what's happening, they see a great many being welcomed into believing on the Lord Jesus such that the only proper label for it is grace. We look here and we see the grace of God in all this welcoming. Fellowship. It's not about one of them. It's about all of them. Church. These are the body of those submitted to Jesus as the head. May we be seen as the people loyal to king jesus is it worth it i think it's worth a new name but that's not all finally it's worth a collaborative return this last scene in 27 through 30 in verse 28 we we get a prophet named agabus uh, and introduced into the story he comes down from jerusalem to antioch along with other prophets and he predicts through supernatural knowledge given to him by God's Holy Spirit, that a famine is coming on the world. And these new Gentile Christians in Antioch decide to do whatever they can to support their mother church back in Jerusalem, that's Judea, that southern region of Israel. They want to support them in their need. In verse 29, they determined to do this, everyone according to his ability. Now, here's the thing, as you're reading through the book of Acts, the Jewish believers took the risk of speaking to non-Jewish peoples to win them to Christ. And now, those non-Jewish Christians are going to return. They're going to meet the physical needs of those Jewish brethren who stepped out in the first place. Now, earlier in this chapter, the Jews were upset with Peter for eating a Gentile. Did I say eating a Gentile? (laughs) Excuse me. Eating with a Gentile. They were very upset about that. And how do the Gentiles respond? They say, if you won't eat with us, we're going to eat with you. And we're going to send you our food. They send their relief back to Jerusalem along with Barnabas and Saul, verse 30. Those who invested not only their property but also their spiritual blessings without judgmentalism toward outsiders, they now receive a good measure back, abounding in generosity. This flows right from Jesus' teaching in Luke 6 and other places, that those who are stingy with their faith will receive stinginess in return. But those who have big faith, without judging people based on appearances or differences in culture or comfort levels, they will receive back way more than they could ever expect, both physical and spiritual. How does this apply? Please speak to those you might not otherwise wish to speak to. And please receive those who receive Jesus whom you might not otherwise receive, and receive them without unrighteous judgment. It's worth it to do so, because Jesus in his grace might just surprise you with a new name and a collaborative return. Now, I can't promise you that some wealthy international graduate student is going to loan you his Bugatti, but I do know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will overflow with abundance such that you get a front row seat to witness with your own eyes the grace of God in action. And you get to do that along with a community of diverse people whose best interests lie in making sure that you are well taken care of along with the rest of the community. May the Lord Jesus Christ be with us and bless his people with peace. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, you are doing a tremendous work and at times it is incredibly painful to see how wrong the world gets this. But Lord, how often are we getting it just as wrong? Please, Strengthen us, embolden us, encourage us as a community to continue moving past barriers, stepping out, reaching across the aisle to just speak and see what you'll do, to listen, to build relationships, to look for those opportunities and to take advantage of them. Father, please grant us a new name. Grant us a collaborative return. Glorify yourself through the power of your spirit and in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who sits at your right hand until all his enemies will be put under his feet. We bow before him. Amen.